You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Our theme tonight is the goodness of God, and just as we sang that God is faithful to His covenant even when we are not. And the idea there is not that you know God is going to save anyone and everyone no matter what they want. The idea is that, hey, we fail, and when we do, it doesn't affect God. God will remain faithful to his word. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so regardless of where we are, we always know where God is. And we don't ever have to waver on that in our minds, although Satan will attack that. He will try to get us to doubt Yet what we read in the Bible, what we stand on are the promises of truth from the scriptures, God's holy word, and we learn that God is faithful to his covenant even when we are not. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Joshua chapter 9. We're resuming our study through the book. And we have here in verses 1 and 2 a a summary of the situation. It's going to give us the context that we need to start off our Bible study tonight. So read them with me in your Bibles. Joshua chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 says, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, is that parasite or parasite? I can't tell, but okay. The Hivite, the Jebusite, and all the other ites, they heard about it. And they, they, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Let's pause here. This gives us the situation. This is the context. You know, the first eight chapters of the book of Joshua, they were all about how the Israelites kind of were, were, were they were the center of tension they were moving they were choosing their objectives god was directing the, all, all of the things so they were kind of on the offensive they were choosing their own objectives well chapter nine is going to mark a change in the book chapter nine changes all of that we now see israel no longer being the ones that pick their objectives they're no longer on the offensive but rather now their objectives will be chosen by others And there in verse 1, we read that these kings of the peoples with the promised land, or in the promised land, they've now heard about it. Uh, We don't know exactly what it is at this moment. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But this reminds us of two other occasions in the book of Joshua when other people had heard about the Israelites and the deeds of the God of the Israelites. One occasion was when the spies visited Rahab. You remember that? They, they visited with Rahab, and, and, and there in chapter 2, we remember that Rahab had actually heard of the Israelites before they even came, and she assured them, these two scouts, these spies, she assured them, hey, the fear and the dread of God is upon all of my people because of what we've heard about God. And so they were uh, filled with fear. The second instance when others had heard of Israel and their God was in chapter 5. When all of the kings of the Amorites, it says, had heard about how God dried up the Jordan River, and God had stopped the water, and all the nation crossed on dry land, and they heard about how great God was. None of their gods did things like that. And so their hearts melted with fear. But now look at verse 2. It tells us that 
all of these kings have now gathered to fight against Israel with one accord. What happened to their hearts being melted by fear? Why are they now mobilized in rage and coming together to unite for war? Why on the other two occasions when they heard about Israel and were filled uh, with dread, and now what has changed that? Why are they uniting together with uh, the, the purpose of war? So these kings, they've been following Israel's history closely for some time now. You know, Rahab, remember, she mentioned that she even heard about how they crossed the Red Sea. So they've been following them, and the Canaanites had, re- earlier, the Canaanites had refused to attack them, remember? Because, why? Because of that fear, that dread that hung over them. So there can be only one reason that they have now mobilized for war. They heard that the Israelites were no longer invincible. They heard that they could be defeated. How did they hear that? Well, remember Ai? The battle of Ai, the very first one, when they went out to fight presumptuously, thinking, hey, we're going to take this little city. It's just a few thousand men. We don't need the whole army. Send them out, guys. And they went out, and they turned back in defeat. And that's the reason now that all of a sudden things have changed. These kings are uniting, and they, they, they know now, hey, Israel is not invincible. They can be defeated but verse two, or these two verse summaries, these two verses that begin the chapter, it's actually underlining something for you and me. It's underlining the devastating effects of sin. Because you'll remember with me what it was that caused the defeat of Israel at Ai in that first attack. It was the sin of Achan and his family. It was the sin of the pride and the presumption of the Israelites. You you see, Achan had stolen that wedge of gold, and he had hidden it away in, in, in the tent there within the camp, and his sin had devastating effects. It had devastating effects, and, and, and this is what we need to learn. This two verses is underscoring that importance for us. The sin of Achan had devastating effects on the military campaign of the entire nation of Israel. Not only were many men killed in the defeat of Ai, but also it changed the entire face of the military campaign. Where once the Israelites were seen as unstoppable, now they're seen as uh, weak and, and able to be defeated. What once was set up to be a fairly easy campaign where God would lead them to the different cities and conquer them with them now has become a conflict that will end up in unending battle with idolatry, bloodshed, and war, and it will haunt Israel even to today. Just like the book of Genesis, when we see Adam and Eve and the fall of all humanity, the sin of Achan has universal consequences. This is why the Bible is so, uh, it warns us so much about sin. This is why you and I need to wake up to the fact that our sin, that, that it, there is no such thing as small sin, first of all. There is no such thing, no matter how small it may seem, that there, there is no sin without far-reaching consequences. And that is why God, in love, warns us and sets up, in the Old Testament, he set up the law as a way to protect his people from those far-reaching consequences of sin. 
In the New Testament, he provided Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ to save us from sin and death. Although we may still have to face the consequences. I pray that the Lord will remind us of this by the Holy Spirit the next time and all the times that we're tempted to sin. We need to know that, hey, there is no small sin. Sin is no laughing matter. Even the smallest of sins, Achan taking a wedge of gold and thinking, ah, no one's going to (laughs) know. It won't be a big deal. And yet it had universal consequences we come now to verse 3 of chapter 9, and this whole section, the rest of the chapter, is, uh, I titled it the, Gibeon, the Gibeonite Exception, because the, all, of all the tribes living in the borders of the promised land, we will find in chapter 9 that the Gibeonites are the only tribe that receives a pardon after their confession of faith and their agreement to serve Israel. So much like Rahab was the only family in the entire city of Jericho to uh, receive that pardon from God and become a part of the family of God, and in fact, part of the very lineage of Jesus Christ, so too the Gibeonites are going to be the one exception to all the tribes of Canaan, and they will be uh, brought in to serve Israel and, and, and part of their worship service. So it's kind of an interesting story. A lot of good spiritual lessons, but let's dive in. Verse 3, we see the deception, the deception here of the Gibeonites. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Israel and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. Let's pause here for a moment. You know, in one respect, what the Gibeonites are doing, we we have to see, we, we need to commend them in one respect for what they're trying to do. You see, the Gibeonites are very wisely realizing, hey, we need to do something to preserve our future. They are realizing they need to submit their lives to God in order to be saved. Now, they remind me here of the unjust steward in Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 9. Jesus tells a parable about an unjust steward who actually, and Jesus actually praises this man for his shrewdness. Jesus tells the story about how this unfair steward worked for a rich man and learned that he was going to be fired by his uh, boss, the rich man. And so that unjust steward quickly uh, arranged several meetings with the debtors of that rich man, and he took their bills and he reduced them greatly, and he signed off of them and, and submitted those bills back to the debtors. And he did that so that after he was fired, he didn't really like his options after he's fired. It says that, you know, he knew he wouldn't be good at digging. He wasn't a manual labor guy. So, you know, he, he decided, you know, I'm going to do something to get in good with the uh, debtors. And that way, when I get fired from here, I'll have a place to stay. (laughs) I'll have some friends. And so Jesus, in the parable, he's actually commending the man for his shrewdness and his preparation for the future. And he says, hey, that man is actually wiser than a lot of believers. He's he's wiser than a lot of, of men that are following and loving God today because he's thinking of the future and making preparation for it today. And that's what the Gibeonites are doing here. They're they're to be commended for responding to the truth, the deeds of God, 
and responding to that and making preparations to be saved from destruction. However, that is about as far as we can commend them. For the way that they go about it is wrong. (laughs) They could have come to Joshua and just told him the truth in total surrender. And I believe that Joshua, along with the high priest, would have sought the Lord. And together, you know, God would have uh, come to the right, led them to the right conclusion. But let's see how this works itself out. Verse 6. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? And you might be, uh, if you're observant, you might have seen, okay, how come they were the Gibeonites and now they're the Hivites? Well, the Hivites were several uh, uh, groups of people, actually, and the Israelites probably, knowing that these guys came from the north where these Hivite tribes lived, they're referring to them generally here as the Hivites. In verse 8, it says, but they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Let's pause here for a moment. It's remarkable to me that right here we see a confession of faith. We see these Hivites, or specifically the Gibeonites, this group of Hivites, they come and they make a confession just like the confession of Rahab, who was a harlot living in the city of Jericho. You see, Rahab and the Gibeonites, they shared in common this, this knowledge that God was able to save. They had figured it out by knowing the deeds, noting the deeds of God, that he was a God that delivered people because of their trust in him. So in both of these cases, both Rahab and now the Gibeonites, they now express faith in the saving power of God. And it was their faith, based on God's deeds, that, they were, uh, that, that God is willing to actually extend salvation to them. You know, this can be your story tonight as well. You know, God is a God who saves. God is a God who establishes a unilateral conditional covenant Unilateral meaning God establishes the terms. Here's how you can be saved. And he proclaims that to the world. But the condition is that you must come to him. Like the Gibeonites, you must come and you must make a confession of faith based on the deeds of God's salvation. What is the deed that I'm talking about? The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. God says, hey, I have provided salvation for you. I have blessings for all eternity in store. But the condition is that you must come and you must buy into that covenant, so to speak. You must say, I believe. And in that act of faith, admitting and receiving the truth of Jesus Christ as Savior, God says, I will not turn you away. In fact, I will, like these Gibeonites, I will bring you into my forever family. And as long as you are a part of that, as long as you are walking in that covenant, it's yours. It's yours. And and what a blessing of that. Now, getting back into our story here, uh, in chapter 9, we realize that the story of the Gibeonites, it could have been the story of all the tribes of the promised land. Check, it, check out verse 11. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, 
saying, and this is the Gibeonites here still talking, they, they, the elders told them, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours, we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which we filled, were new. And see, they are torn. And these, our garments, our sandals, have become old because of the very long journey. So there's the deception of the Gibeonites. They're, they're totally deceiving right now. They're lying. They're lying about all this stuff. But let's see what happens to them in verse 14. It says, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. If you've got a, a pen or a highlighter, highlight that portion right there, verse 14. They did not ask counsel of the Lord. And that's going to come back to bite them. Verse 15. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Okay, there in verse 15, Joshua makes peace with these people. That word, the Hebrew word for peace in, in, in this verse is shalom. Okay, and uh, I'm looking forward to going to Israel this year with a few of you. And I'm looking forward to using that word a lot, shalom. Uh, and, and it means peace. And, and here Joshua is extending the peace that God has given to the Israelites. He's extending that same peace to these people. So the Gibeonites have now secured a treaty with Israel. They've secured peace with God through confessing faith in God and by pledging to be servants within Israel. So basically, if we were looking at this um, you know, from a medieval standpoint, they've made themselves or declared themselves to be a vassal state of Israel. Now I want to take a break from the passage Right now, and I want to, for a few minutes tonight, focus on what I believe are two hugely important applications for our lives, for our personal lives as Christians. You see, the Bible wasn't given to us just to merely study it externally, but it's meant to be internalized. It's meant to, to take the lessons, the moral lessons from these stories, and to internalize them, to apply them in our hearts. So, Personal application number one tonight for us then is that the deception of the enemy and the deceitfulness of sin is real, and we need to watch out for it. We need to be aware. We need to be warned. The deception of the enemy and the deceitfulness of sin are very real things. How did this group of Canaanites, the very ones that Israel was commanded to destroy, how did they find their way into the very holy camp of the Lord. How did they get in? Well, they did it by disguising themselves. You see, if, it, if they were seen for who they were as the enemy, they probably would have never been permitted to pass into the camp. A cry of warning would have gone out. The, the guards may have killed them before they were able to even come even close to the holy camp of God of Israel. When I was in the Marine Corps, we used to set up perimeters at night in our, uh, our, our little uh, uh, fighting areas. We, when we would train in the mountains there in Camp Pendleton, uh, we would you know, dig in for the night, and we would create a little bivouac site, a little campsite there, and we would establish a perimeter, and at each one of those important perimeter points, we would have a, a watch guard, a fire watch, we called them. And if there was anybody that came or tried to get into our camp, they would be challenged 
with one half of a passphrase. And so that, that, that watchman would yell out that passphrase, and if there was no immediate answer of the right second part of that passphrase, hey, we would open up fire. Of course, it was just blanks, so you know, there'd just be a lot of shooting going on, but no bullets, just, you know, just for fun, really. <laughs> but that was the training that we received. Much like that, I, I imagine the Israelites had a system where if there was no passphrase, then you didn't get in. But because they were disguised and because they came and they were talking reverently about God, they were able to get in. They were able to fool the Israelites. You know, this is a tactic of the enemy. If he can't beat you at Jericho or Ai, then he will, uh, through a direct assault, then he will circumvent that and use deception and lies to get inside your heart. Look at the course of church history. The early church suffered through 10 waves of bloody persecution. The 10 Roman emperors who came and persecuted the church. And, and then what was happening to the church during that time? The church flourished. The church prospered, spiritually speaking. <laughs> Hypocrisy was really not a big deal in the early church for those first uh, few hundred years of its existence, or for a few hundred, uh, I say few hundred, few decades of its early existence. Who would want to be a Christian if you knew that your blood might be shed? Who would want to be a Christian if when you were standing before the altar of Caesar and you failed to make the pledge that was necessary of all the Roman citizens in that empire and they might kill you right there on the spot? Who would want to be a part of the church? Only those that had genuinely been touched by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Only those that were true believers. But then what happened? Well, we know that the, when the enemy couldn't defeat the church through direct assault, he changed tactics, didn't he? Emperor Constantine came along, and he decided to use Christianity for political gain. He used Christianity to gather a following that couldn't be stopped, and, and, and he legalized Christianity and married the church to the Roman state. And every major Christian festival was married to a pagan one, and the calendar was combined. Those pagan holidays given Christian names and the church went from being free of hypocrisy and ambitious leaders to being a playground for hypocrites. What the church gained in prestige and worldly power, she lost in character and spiritual strength. We need to take a warning from the scriptures, from the history of church, from our own lives. We need to be careful, church, that we would learn a lesson from the Gibeonites you see, not all who express interest in God, not all who express interest in church are worthy to be let into our inner circle of influence. They're not worthy to be brought into our marriages or our family environments or our church family until we know, until we've observed, until we can see the fruit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be careful about what we allow into that precious place of influence in our hearts. Who influences you? Who have you allowed into that inner circle to be a part of that part of your life? Proverbs 4.23 says, hey, keep your heart with all diligence. That means diligently watch over your own heart. 
what you allow in, what the influences are. Because whatever you allow in, hey, the, the, the same proverb, Proverbs 4, 23 says, keep your heart without diligence, for from it flows all the issues of your life. All of the issues in your life, hey, they're directly related to what you are allowing in. The garbage that goes in will be garbage that comes out. Jesus said it is out of the mouth that, er, out of the, mouth that the abundance of the heart speaks. So what are you uh, allowing into that inner heart, that influential place? Know that the enemy will disguise himself in order to pass himself off as someone we can trust just to get into our life and to gain a foothold. The second personal application point we can take from this deception of the Gideonites is that there's a foolishness in not asking the Lord for counsel. Many, many of us do not ask the Lord enough for his counsel in our lives. You noted there in verse 14 that that was the problem that the Israelites had. They didn't ask the Lord. The issues that face us while we're here on the earth, listen, they're sometimes very difficult to discern, aren't they? It's very difficult to understand everything that's at play, everything that's at stake. We just can't see it clearly. And not only that, we're very limited in our understanding of what people's motives are. We, we can't put ourselves in that place of you know, being a judge of every person's motives. It's not our place. Only God could know them. That's why we need to go to him. We need to learn the moral of this story tonight that we need to be seeking the Lord for counsel in all of our lives' decisions. Not just the seemingly important ones, but hey, ones like, hey, should I allow my kids to go over and play at the neighbor's house? Hey, do, do, do I need to pray about, you know, this, this, you know, slumber party that I'm letting my kid go to? Uh, maybe you're thinking about getting married. Well, that's a very important life decision. Have you brought that to the Lord? Are you actively seeking him? Are you saying, God, will you please lead and guide in this whole situation? I need to know if this is uh, who you have for me. And listen, God's not going to listen to you if you're already living in sin. Hey, you're already ignoring his general counsel. Why is he going to give you direct counsel? You need to repent from the simple situation that you're living in. If you're in a premarital sexual relationship, because God's not going to be able to direct you if you're already ignoring him and the, the things, just the general things that he's laid out for his people. So listen, we need, to, we need to realize that we need to be ones that are seeking the Lord. We don't know who we're dealing with all the time. Whether they're truly saved or maybe they just seem like it outwardly. You know, as a pastor, I sit down with lots of people that think they married the absolute wrong person. <laughs> and, and they're like, man... <laughs> They said all the right things and did all the right things before we got married. But now I don't know who this person is. And it's a sad thing that tears people's hearts and lives apart. We need to seek the counsel of the Lord. You know, he can see through all the false motives. He can see through all of the things of deceit and trickery. He knows what's happening and he wants to give you a red light or a green light. And maybe he'll give you a yellow light. And that just means you got to wait longer until it becomes clear. You just got to wait until it becomes clear. We desperately need discernment. We don't know whether this person is a tear or a wheat, whether they're saved or not, whether they're an angel 
or whether it's Satan disguised as an angel of light. We desperately need discernment and counsel from the Lord for decision making. We should never trust our own judgment. We should never trust our own judgment alone. If we really knew our hearts, we never would. When we feel pressured to make a decision, guys, whether it's from voices within or voices without, hey, we need to remember the story of the Gibeonites tonight. We need to resist those voices, and we need to wait patiently on the Lord. We need to quiet our hearts. We need to seek Jesus. We need to allow him uh, to, to guide us. He's that one that is the wonderful counselor. We need to take the time to pray. Before we enter into any alliance, whether marriage or business with someone or any other kind of a proposition, even if it's a play date, uh, spend the night party, whatever it is, we need to pray. And God will answer us if we're listening. He will speak to our conscience by giving us peace. He may speak to us through a friend. He may speak to us through a parent. He may give us a verse. But he has many messengers. We just need to acknowledge all of our ways. Remember, that's what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to do, that we're to acknowledge God in all of our ways. We're to lay our ways out before him, acknowledging him and allowing him the opportunity to direct our path. We come now to the disclosure. After the deceitfulness of the Gibeonites, the disclosure comes out beginning in verse 16. It says, and it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that there were their that that they were, they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. <laughs> so they figured it out. Well, these guys are our neighbors. Verse 17. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kirjath, Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. There's that faithfulness. <laughs> They're, they're representing God here, and God is faithful. And, and, and it says, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. And they're like, guys, you screwed up again. You, you keep making these major mistakes, and we're going to pay. We're going to pay for it. Listen, when you're an elder in the church, when you're a leader in the church, there's a heavier responsibility on your shoulders. You are going to answer to the Lord for the way that you lead. And, 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 and here the people are going, oh, man, man, you guys, we need you to be faithful. We need you to seek the Lord. We need you to be praying. Pray for your elders. Pray for your leaders. Pray for me. We covet your prayers. We so desperately need them. We want to lead you in the way that God would have us to go. And that's not always easy. Because not everybody always likes the way that we think God's leading us. <laughs> so we, we have to be able to stand. But, but here they had made a mistake, and the people call them out on it, and it's a moment of shame. But in verse 19, then all the rulers said to all the congregation, hey, we've sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. So they recognize, yeah, hey, we, we messed up, but we, gotta, we, we swore an oath in, 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 the, in the Lord's name. And because we swore this oath, this promise, we made this promise in the name of the Lord, we have to keep it. So they are doing some right things. They are, they are showing some maturity here. That's good. Representing the Lord accurately. And says there in the, uh, verse 
22. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 21. The ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us? Saying, we are very far from you. When you dwell near to us. So Joshua's confronting them over their lie. Verse 23. Now therefore you are cursed. And none of you shall be freed from being slaves. Woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So Joshua basically uh, confirms that word. And he says yes you are going to be woodcutters and water carriers. In the house of Israel. In the house of, of, of God. So they answered Joshua and said to him. Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you, and we've done this thing. Now that here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So once again, they're expressing faith. They're going, hey, we realize that God gave this land to you, and we're in submission to that. We're in submission to that truth. And based on the deeds of God, we want to be a part of, of salvation. We want, to, we want to be a part of this. So do whatever you think is right. Well, guess what? God doesn't turn people away. If people come to the Lord, he will receive them. And this is what he does. Verse 26, so he said to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. So he, they, they were saved. Verse 27, And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. So listen, by making them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation, the Gibeonites actually became a part of the worship of Israel. They, they became included in the worship of Israel, the formal worship of the nation. You can read about the Gibeonites uh, later in your Bible. Uh, they, they pop up here and there throughout the book of Kings and Chronicles and all the way up to Nehemiah where we see that they still were with Israel. And they came back in the captivity. So it's pretty amazing stuff. But I want to close out our study tonight with a third personal application point for us. You see, we learned through this story tonight that God can overrule our mistakes and he can bring blessing even out of sin. That's amazing. God can overrule our mistakes. And I make a lot of them. I confess it. And he can actually bring blessing out of sin, guys. The first step of God bringing blessing into sin is confession, guys. That's where God's blessing begins. He's given us confession as a blessing in itself. To say the same thing as God says about your sin, oh, it's so liberating, it's so freeing, it's so precious, it's a gift. God provides that blessing of confession, and there, from there, he can do even greater things. You see, the Gibeonites actually end up being a beautiful example of how God brings beauty from the ashes of mistakes. While we still have to live with the consequences of our sin. God is able to overrule our error and to bless us in spite of wrong choices. You may have married a Gibeonite. <laughs> you might have signed a business agreement with a Gibeonite. You might have hired one, or maybe you are the Gibeonite. But whatever the case tonight, we know 
that if people turn to God, if that Gibeonite will sincerely desire God, God will save them. God will turn that situation into a blessing. He can do it. As Samson said in one of his riddles, he said, Out of the eater, something to eat, and out of the strong, something sweet. God can take a lion and turn it into a meal. <laughs> he could take a lion and cause there to be honey that comes out of that lion. As Paul has said, he puts it a different way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to just read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, Paul says this. He says, now I will speak to the rest of you, though I don't have a direct command from the Lord. But if a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. Look at how God can make holy children out of a marriage where Gibeonite is involved there. Verse 15, but if the husband or the wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? So God is able to use a situation and, and, and he can bring grace. He can, the grace of God is so big that if you'll start by confessing your own sins, if you'll start by uh, admitting your part in it, and agreeing with God about what you've done, hey, God can transform your mistake into a blessing. That doesn't always happen that way because sometimes the other party refuses to start with confession. They refuse to say the same thing as God says about their sin. And in other cases, it's too late. The consequences of that sin have to be seen. And they are being seen, and that's, that's unfortunate, but it happens. Sin produces consequences. I've seen it. And, and, and I've often seen remorseful, I don't know about repentant, but remorseful men and women mourning the results of their sin, the consequences of their sin that they can't change. But oh, that they would repent and confess and turn away from sin and turn to God and allow God to possibly change that situation from ashes to beauty. He can do it. He can do it. You may still have to go through divorce because of mistakes that have been made. But the Gibeonites remind us tonight that anyone who will cast himself or herself on the mercy of God will not be turned away. With time, God even uses Gibeonites in his service. I praise the Lord for that. What a picture of grace and love. Hey, you might be chopping wood, you might be carrying water, you might be working on inner character for a long time, but you'll be used in the worship service of the king, and there's nothing greater than that. 
There's nothing greater than knowing that, hey, I'm here in the presence of the Lord. My soul has been saved from destruction. The sin that was going to destroy me has been arrested. It's been paid for. It's been covered. And now I can stand in the presence of the Lord. Hey, I might just be a doorkeeper. (laughs) But David said, it's better to be a doorkeeper than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Because what is in store for them is the judgment of God. So listen tonight. Hey, be encouraged. Be filled with hope. Be filled with this opportunity tonight to to grasp onto the grace and the goodness of God. Just like the Gibeonites did. Let's pray.